Open up your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. If someone would like to hit the lights in the back, that'd be great. And uh, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get a Bible to you this morning. Jim's got a stack of old Bibles back there. Anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand up. Don't be shy. Two or three on this side, Jim. And we'll bring those around to you. Just keep that hand up until you see a Bible coming your way. Oh, the party can't read. It's Numbers chapter 20. We'll remember that for next time. (laughs) Numbers chapter 20. We talked about this Wednesday night. I want to bring you up to speed this morning if you weren't with us that Numbers chapter 20 marks the end of an era. We come to this place in the scriptures as we've been studying through. And if you're new to the bridge, if you maybe haven't been with us that long, we're just studying through the Bible. The first meeting of the Bridge Christian Fellowship was a Bible study right across the way in the house. It was on a Wednesday night, October the 8th, 2003, and we opened up the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been at it ever since. And we're at Numbers chapter 20 now. A lot has happened, a lot of amazing things, and if you haven't had the opportunity to study through with us, I'd encourage you to go back and start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and just study it and read it through, and get caught up to where we are. But in Numbers chapter 20, we have a change, an end of an era. We come to the end of the lives of Miriam and Aaron, those two sidekicks, if you will, to Moses, the two helpers that God chose to have them lead alongside Moses, to shore up Moses, to support Moses. Of course, they didn't always do that. You know, uh, Miriam and Aaron came against Moses a couple of times. Aaron with the great golden calf incident and, and Miriam deciding that Moses really wasn't the only one God talked to. That was back in Numbers 12. But now we come to the end of their lives. And honestly, with Miriam and Aaron out of the way, some of the old vanguard, some of the old leadership is now out of the way and no longer, I hate to say this, but no longer is Israel toting around a dead horse. I mean no disrespect to Miriam or Aaron. But we see consistently throughout their lives that their attitudes weren't as toward God as as we would like to think, as we would like to hope. It's hard. It's hard to be in leadership, especially where there's someone else as Moses in charge. Moses, the younger brother. And so it must have been difficult for Miriam and Aaron. They didn't hear. They didn't hear from Moses or from God as often as Moses did. And so here we are at the end of their lives in Numbers chapter 20. We also come to the end of the wilderness wandering. The people now have gathered back at Kadesh on the border of the promised land. The wandering is over. And what's interesting about that, if you've paid attention, if you've seen these things, the children of Israel have been wandering as far as chapters in the Bible for a very short amount of time. Now you and I know it was some 39 years that they wandered in the wilderness. But the Bible only talks about those wanderings from Numbers chapter 14 to Numbers chapter 20. Comparatively greater than that is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. For the giving of the law, the Lord determines to begin in Exodus 19 and run all the way through Leviticus up to Numbers chapter 10. A vastly larger section of scripture is given to the giving of the law. Why? Because punishment, and listen to me, punishment 
is not God's desire for you and for me. Punishment is not God's desire for mankind. Provision is. And so while we see the punishment of the people over six chapters as they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years, we also see the provision for the people covered in 56 chapters of the Old Testament Scriptures. God providing for their lives, for their livelihood, for their well-being, and ultimately providing the flashlight, if you will, the spotlight on Jesus Christ who eventually would take punishment away from all of us. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, The law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul also says in Galatians chapter uh, 3 verse 24, I believe it's 3, it may say 2 up there. Yes, I think it's chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. All of that time, 56 chapters spent on the law for this reason, to point us in the direction of Jesus. To help us see that we cannot make it on our own, that we're not strong enough or bright enough or tough enough or righteous enough to be what God needs us to be in His presence. And so the law points that out. It it shines that flashlight on our sins. And, And there we stand with all of our sins hanging out there. And Jesus in that moment dies on the cross for us, revealing the true plan of God, which is salvation. Salvation, not punishment. So we come to the end of the lives of Miriam and Aaron. We come to the end of the wilderness wandering. We also come to the end of Moses' patience with the people. He has finally had it. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And thus the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for our beasts, or for us and for our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this place, this wretched place? Is it not a place of grain it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels! Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them 
Father, help us to understand this passage. And help us to clearly see your heart in it. And help us, Father, to bow to your authority and to your desire and to your leadership. Father, I know many pastors before me have prayed this over a fellowship, over a congregation, over a group of people. But I pray, Father, today that you will reign as the authority over this place. That, Jesus, you will lead us. That we will not move out without the sound of your voice. That we will not hold back when you call us. But we will, we will hear and follow. And that we will go the direction that you want us to go. And, Father, when this is hard, so be it. But I pray that we would be aware of the drawing of your Holy Spirit. And we would be in complete submission to you. Whatever that means, Father. And I pray as we study this morning, we will see, even in the life of Moses, this great prophet, greatest prophet of Israel, that we will see what happens when man takes things into his own hands. Father, we abdicate our authority to you in Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses had a remarkable responsibility, an incredible responsibility, an overwhelming responsibility over the people of Israel. As their deliverer, he was the man who led millions out of slavery, across the desert to Mount Sinai, to the border of the Promised Land, and there, after the hearts of the Israelites failed, Moses then was responsible to lead them for another 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. How did he do it? How in the world could Moses handle all of this? Well, if you look back in Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, we learn something of Moses. We've seen it before, but I want to remind you of it now. God, speaking of Moses, said the following. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. When I speak with him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form, or the manifestation there, of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? God says something absolutely amazing about Moses. Unlike any other prophet... And we will read of the prophets as we go forward in our study of the scriptures. But unlike any other prophet, God and Moses walked together, talked together, shared together. Moses was right there with the Lord. When Moses cried out to the Lord, he didn't have to wait and guess at what God was saying. He knew what God was saying because God spoke directly to him, clearly, not in dark sayings. Not in dreams, not in visions. Mouth to mouth, he spoke to Moses. And Moses was utterly unique among all the prophets, dynamically different than any other prophet in the history of Israel, which is why Deuteronomy 34.10 says, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This is not the Moses you saw in the New Ten Commandments, if you happened to watch that a week or so ago. What a pathetic display of the man described in Scripture. A man who in the movie version, the TV version, didn't know where the Lord was leading. Oh, oh, maybe it's this way. Maybe it's that way. No. Moses of the Bible knew exactly where he was supposed to go because he heard directly from the Lord and he led Israel after the Lord. 
He knew what he was doing. He heard from the Lord. But with all that said and understanding all this about Moses, he had a problem. And it's a problem you need to listen to because every single one of us here this morning share that problem. We've all got the same problem Moses had. Oh, he was a great man of God, but still he was a man. He was human. He was human like all the rest of us. A sinner, flawed, limited, just like you, just like me. And our story this morning reveals, if you look for it, Moses' flawed humanity, which ultimately results in Moses' greatest sin. Go back to Numbers 20. We're going to look at this for a bit this morning. Now you might say his greatest sin, his greatest sin, striking the rock. Striking the rock is Moses' greatest. That's the worst thing Moses did. Come on! I mean, there are a couple of Hebrews who might argue that point. Back in Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we know there are a couple of Hebrew guys fighting. Moses came up and said, Brothers, don't fight against each other. And one of them said to Moses, What, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian murderer? You may recall, before Moses was driven out of Egypt, before he fled Egypt, he murdered a man. He murdered an Egyptian. I would think that would count pretty high on the list of sins. I would think murdering someone would probably be worse than striking the rock. Not so. Not so in this case. Now, Zipporah, Moses' wife, she might have thought that his greatest sin was ignoring his responsibility to his son, to his family. Maybe that's where Moses' greatest sin was. Because, and you may recall the story in Exodus chapter 4, after Moses heard from God, as he and and his wife Zipporah and his son Gershom are headed back to Egypt, as they're on the way there, God almost kills him. Why? Because Moses has neglected to circumcise his son, which was a covenant given all the way back to Abraham, incredibly important, and Moses, now called by God to be a man of God, has not even circumcised his own son. And so his wife Zipporah would would say, well, I think that's a great sin right there. You're so focused on your ministry. You're so focused on your mission, Moses, you forgot about your own family. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Ministry... Guys wandering out there. Forgive me, by the way, if you call my house and you get the answering machine. Forgive me if it's evening time and you call and you really need to talk to Pastor Rick and the machine comes on. Why? Because I'm probably with my kids, which is where I need to be. And I'll tell you what, it's a struggle. I'm not perfect with it. Ask Hannah. She knows. How many times Dad is heading out the door? Ask Corey. How many times I'm, I'm having to do other things. And they're incredibly patient kids. But it's tough. It's not easy. I'm not complaining, but Zipporah might have said that about Moses. What about your family? As a matter of fact, later in Moses' life, as he was leading the children of Israel out, I don't know if you realize this, but he had sent Zipporah away. She had left. Something happened there. We don't know exactly what happened. But she was back with her father Jethro. And Jethro brings her back out to meet with Moses and to be together with him. And that's the last we hear of Zipporah. We don't hear about the marriage and the family life so much of Moses as he leaves. So she might say, no, his greatest sin is he's not there for his family. Aaron and Miriam might say, no, his greatest sin is after Zipporah was out of the picture when he married outside the faith. He married a Cushite woman. Not even an Israelite. He's leading the Israelites, creating here, developing, being used by God to lead a nation. And he marries outside of it. Wasn't there a woman in three million people that Moses could find? Isn't there someone in there? How bad could it be? I mean, it's not like the the line down there at the DMV. 
If you've ever stood in that line, I apologize. But gang, none of these other possible offenses, no other sins in Moses' life kept him from going into the promised land. Nothing else revoked his opportunity to lead the people into Canaan's land. This did. Suddenly out of all these possible sins and many other sins that are not listed in Scripture that I'm sure he committed, all of a sudden now Moses cannot go into the promised land because he struck a rock. Come on! What's the deal with this? Why is the Lord's discipline so severe? I want you to jot down a few things this morning to see in this text. It is incredibly important, especially as we approach the Lord. First thing to jot down here, Moses struck out in anger. Moses struck out in anger. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, Because you have not believed... Well, no, go back. Go back. I'm sorry. Verse 8. God says to Moses, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Down in verse 10, we see what Moses does. He doesn't speak to the rock. He speaks to the people. And what he says is, Listen now, you rebels. You rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then he strikes the rock. The word rebel there. When he calls them rebels, it's Mara. You've seen the word before. It was used to speak of bitter waters. It means bitterness or rebellious spirit, Mara. It's interesting that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the word translated in the Greek is moros, which is where we get our word moron so that's what Moses is saying you morons you idiots you blockheads you want water I'll bring water you want something thirsty you don't deserve a single drop he is really laying into the people here thing is God wasn't the Lord wasn't upset with the people oh yeah they were whining and complaining as usual but God wasn't mad this time he wasn't angry this time Moses was, and he struck out in anger. Psalm 106, verse 32 says, They also provoked or literally angered him to wrath at the waters of Meribah. So it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against his spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. Moses has an anger problem. He blows up, he lashes out, he strikes out. But gang, his problem is not a long-standing issue. Oh, there are those who would say, well, see, you look back early in his life when he murdered the Egyptian, and that was an anger problem. Moses must have been a guy who just flew off the handle all the time. Not so. Not so. Some commentators point to that and say, see, you see this in his character. I don't believe so. I think you would have seen Moses blowing up all over the place across the 40 years of wandering. There were so many opportunities for Moses to get angry. He never did. In fact, what was Moses' mode of operation? What did he do? He typically would fall down on his face. Remember, flat-nosed Moses. That's how you're going to know him in heaven. Because he keeps falling on his face before the Lord. You're going to see him and you're going to go, Oh, that must be Moses. Because he was always on his face before the Lord, not getting angry with the people. This is a unique circumstance. When he killed the Egyptian, it was in defense of his brothers. As his heart was being stirred for his people, it wasn't an act of anger. But Moses certainly has an anger problem here. And gang, I want you to listen to this because it's important and it goes to our own sin life. Moses was not known for anger. He was known for humility. He was known for humility, for meekness. He was known as a man who anytime someone came against him, he just went down on his knees and prayed. He did not have anger issues. He had meekness and humility issues. But, listen... There's a principle here. 
My area, listen to this, my area of greatest strength is often the breeding ground of my greatest sin. The place where I am strongest, not where I'm weakest, where I'm strongest is often the place that I sin. What do you mean? What are you saying? Look, Noah was a sober man. He was the only clear-thinking man in his day. And yet, what was his rate of sin? He got drunk. He got drunk. It was the least clear-thinking, sober thing he could possibly do. And his sin was drunkenness. He was a sober man. What about David? David was a man whose greatest strength was his passion for the Lord. He loved the Lord. He, he, was, he was absolutely over the, over the top in love with God. His passion was his greatest strength. It was also his greatest sin because it led him to sleep with Bathsheba. Greatest strength? Yes. And that was his sin. It wasn't his weakness, it was his strength that led to his sin. Elijah, what about Elijah, who stood courageously against 400 prophets of Baal? It's an incredible story, as he stood on Mount Carmel. And what was his greatest weakness? Cowardice. He he ran away at the threat of one woman, Jezebel. He hears that Jezebel has it in for him, and now he's scared. This is the same man who moments before was courageous. His strength was his courage. It became his downfall. What are you saying? I'm saying simply this. You might say, I'm a smart, sober person. Okay, Noah. Good for you. You might say, my marriage is strong. That's an area in my life I don't have to worry about. It will never fail. I'd say, talk to David. You might say, I don't fear the threats of man. Neither did Elijah. Fear the threat of a woman. My area of greatest strength is often the breeding ground of my greatest sin. Why is that? Listen, because I'm aware of my weaknesses. I know what my weaknesses are. I pray about my weaknesses. I ask the Lord to guard against my weaknesses that I don't fall in those areas. But I'm real comfortable with my strengths. I'm confident in my area of strength. And that's the place that Satan will often attack. That's the place where often we fall. Where we think we are strongest is where we often end up falling because we let our guard down. I'm not going to worry about my area of strength. I'm just going to pray for my weaknesses. Know this. Moses was strong in patience. Strong in meekness. Strong in humility. And the one major blow it of his entire life that we see in Scripture is he blows up. An area that we wouldn't have expected it from Moses. This is not the way he acts, and yet it is how he acted. The problem, gang, is not with your own particular sin issue. The problem is not with upbringing. It's not with background or maybe even disposition. The problem we have in our lives is our sin nature. And our sin nature is pervasive and will nail us where we least expect it. Which is why Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And listen to these words. He says, for apart from me you can do nothing. Take the Holy Spirit out of this church. Remove the Holy Spirit from this world and we would fall apart. We wouldn't have the strength to do what God wants us to do. It is only by being connected to the vine who is Jesus. Now listen, the expression of anger... Moses' expression of anger is not sin in and of itself. But, but James 1.20 says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so Moses in his anger is not achieving the righteousness of God. You might say, well, didn't Jesus get angry? Yes, but it was a godly, righteous anger. 
Now you might say, as I thought about it, as I read this, look at the pressure that Moses is under. Look at what Moses has to deal with and struggle with. I would have buckled years before dealing with this stiff neck of noxious people, these whiners. God himself was even angry with the Israelites before this. Doesn't the Lord understand Moses' anger? And I would say absolutely he does. But the anger is not the issue. There's something more going on here. More than simply blowing up. Look at verse 10 again. Moses is speaking to the people and one little word. You've got to catch this. He says, listen now, you rebels, morons. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Shall we do it? I have we circled in my Bible here. Number two, if you're taking notes, Moses usurped God's authority. Moses wasn't the one who was going to bring water out of the rock. It wasn't Moses' power. It wasn't his strength. It was not his doing. He was not the provider. He was the leader, humanly, the director, the deliverer, but he was not the provider. He couldn't have brought water out of that rock if his life depended on it. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. He didn't win the battle against the Amalekites. He didn't light the fire at night or bring the manna in the morning. He did not do that. He was not the provider. Jehovah Jireh, our Lord, our provider. God is the provider, not Moses. And in this brief moment, Moses takes it upon himself to join himself with God and say, Shall we do this for you? He elevates himself to the place of God and usurps God's authority. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Anybody know? And glorify your Father. Let your light shine before men that they may see what you do. But when they see it, they don't go, Oh, Jim, he's just an amazing spiritual man. I want to be like Jim. That's not what Jesus said. Let your light so shine that when you look at Jim and you see the righteousness and you see the goodness, you go, oh, praise God. Because I know Jim. And when he does these great things, praise the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. <laughs> Let people see these things in you and glorify the Lord. Not This is why we turned around earlier this morning. Because we get so used to looking up this way, to focusing up front, and the Lord saying, excuse me, who is this about? It's not about the worship team. It's not about Pastor Rick. It's not about any of the elders or leaders at this place. It is about the authority of God, the Father. That's where the glory goes, to the Lord. Jesus said, beware, Matthew 5, 6, or 6, 1, sorry. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And even Jesus said in John eight fifty four, if I glorify myself... My glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me. And so Paul writes, Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The exodus was not about Moses. The water from the rock was not about Moses. These were not Moses' people. And... By the way, you're not my people either. When things go on here at the bridge, and I pray and I seek God's leading for what we're going to do, guess what I have to be reminded? It's not my church. It's not my people. We together are God's children, God's people. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I will build Rick's. I need to be reminded of that from time to time. Now listen. 
Because more than either of these other two things, the anger, the overstepping of authority, there's something else that's absolutely critical to see that Moses does here. It's number three. Moses obscured God's character. By taking on what he did, he obscured God's character. He got in the way. He misrepresented the very nature of the Lord. If you were among the Israelites that day, what would you have thought when Moses stood up and started shouting and striking the rock? You would have thought, oh no, God's mad again, and God wasn't. Oh no, God's upset with us. What's going to happen? God was pleased to bring water for the people. In fact, in spite of Moses striking the rock, God still brought water. Even though Moses did it the wrong way and expressed anger, God loved the people so much that he still provided for them, still brought the water to them. In verse 13, look down at that. The Lord says, or the Bible says, these were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. How did God prove himself holy here? By providing for their thirst. By bringing the water to them that day. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God's grace, God's patience, God's mercy, and God's kindness, gang, were not lost on the people of Israel, at least in that moment, for he brought them water to drink. And I don't want to be one of those who misrepresents God. One who comes down on people when the Lord is not coming down on people. How can I avoid that? How can I avoid misrepresenting God? I mean, I must do it all the time. I'm at work and someone knows that I'm a Christian. And I shout at them or go off on them or I I do something that they know is not Christian. I've just misrepresented God. I drive down the road and I've got a bumper sticker on my car that says, Jesus loves you, but when someone cuts me off, oh, that's the last thing I'm showing them is love. I've misrepresented God. And this is what Moses does. And gang, I think it's worse than anything else. It's worse than the anger. It's worse than the fact that he tried to couple himself up there with the Father, you know, elevate his authority a little bit. The fact that he misrepresented, that he gave a wrong picture of who God is, of who God was. And so how do we not do that? Well... Romans 8.5 says, Those who, are, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. How do I do that? You pray. You pray. You talk to Jesus. You focus on the Spirit and ask that your heart be on His things. But I'll tell you something else that's very simple. It's very simple. You want to know what the Spirit is into? You want to know what matters to the Spirit of God? Could I just encourage you to open up this book and spend some time in it? I mean, he's given us everything we need in here for life and godliness, the Bible tells us. We meet every Wednesday night and we study the Word. We have women's groups that have been studying the Word. A men's group that meets on Tuesday night. We have opportunities galore at the bridge to be in the Word. And if you're not in the Word, guess what? You are in danger of not knowing what the Spirit thinks. Not knowing what's important to the Spirit of God. If you're not in His Word, how are you going to know what matters to Him? And how are you going to keep from misrepresenting the Lord? I invite you to be in the Word. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. You want to not sin against the Lord? Be in the word. By the way, when Moses struck the rock rather than speaking to it, not only did he obscure God's character, but worst of all, worst of all, number four, Moses messed up a messianic portrait. Moses messed up a messianic 
portrait. He distorted a divine depiction here. He polluted the prophetic. He took a hold of something that God had planned, a big, beautiful, gorgeous portrait, and he slashed it. He messed it up. What do you mean? How so? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10.3 tells us that the Israelites all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Paul says, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The picture of the rock. Why God chose for water to flow out of the rock. He could have bubbled up out of the ground. He could have brought on them a great rainstorm and they just collected as it comes down. But no, God chose for water to come bursting out of a rock. Why? Because the rock is a picture of Christ Jesus. That we later on will be able to look back and see that. And understand that the rock, Paul says, was Christ. And this is the second time, by the way, the rock, the rock appears in the story of the Exodus of Israel. You remember the first time? It's back in Exodus 17, verse 5. I'll just read this to you. Then the Lord said to Moses... <clears throat> Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall listen, you shall, don't miss this, you shall strike the rock. So the first time God said to Moses, strike it. I want you to strike the rock. Hit the rock. Boom. Moses does so and the water comes out of it. Moses the first time is told by God, okay, they're thirsty, I'm going to bring water out of the rock. Strike the rock, Moses. Strike the rock. Understand this, listen to this, the rock is Jesus. Strike the rock. Strike the rock. What happened, by the way, when Moses struck the Nile? When he struck the Nile with his staff, what happened? It turned to blood. What happens now when Moses strikes the rock? What flows out of the rock when he struck it the first time? Water. Blood. Water. What happens when Jesus, the rock, was struck by the soldier's staff, his spear, there at Golgotha? What flowed out? Blood and water. Water and blood, absolutely. We talked about this last week. The rock gang. The rock is Jesus. Blood and water flowing from Jesus. Blood in the Nile. Water from the rock. God is painting a picture here for us to see. A picture of Christ. The rock is Jesus. And Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The word smitten there, gang, is the same exact word that's used when God tells Moses to strike the rock. Strike the rock. We esteemed Him as struck. As stricken. But don't miss this. Here's the picture. The rock was only to be struck one time. Only once. God told Moses the first time you strike the rock, the second time you speak to the rock. Why? Romans chapter 6 verse 9 Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again death no longer has mastery over him the death that he died he died to sin once for all one death of Jesus one payment for the price of sins not multiple deaths not continuing to the return to the cross time and time and time again every time someone sins it was a death one time the rock was struck once 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God the first time God says Moses I want you to strike the rock why? it's a picture of Jesus being struck once and the second time in God's plan he says no Moses don't strike it just go speak to the rock speak to it 
just speak to it. Saying after the rock, after Jesus Christ was struck at the cross that first time, we only have but to speak to the rock for living waters to flow. For us to experience Him in the way He desires to be experienced. John 7.37 Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Jesus would say today, Speak to Me. Come to Me. Talk to Me. Don't look to strike the rock. Don't try to find a way to pay for your sins yourself. You're not going to do it. Don't strike me again. Just talk to me. It's all you have to do. This is grace. All you have to do is come to me. Speak to me. And my spirit will flow. And will flow into you. It's a brilliant, beautiful, profound picture of God's grace. His great love and His desire to pour out His spirit to anyone who comes to Him. But Moses messed it up. Moses struck struck the rock the first time and then the second time he struck it twice. It's this picture of, you know, we've got to keep going after it. We've got to keep striking, keep striking. Meribah, the waters of Meribah, that word means strife. It means contention. The people are striving in thirst. And God graciously understands that. But Moses contends with the people and finds out, in fact, that he is striving against God. Flip in your Bibles now to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. As you're turning there, this passage, it's a song of Moses, it's an awesome song, and he begins to sing of the Jewish people and talk about them and, and their place, their position in history and what, what their lives are about. I want to invite you to consider coming back tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. And you may not have been at any of the Revelation Bible study. It doesn't matter. This is a standalone chapter of Scripture that is so amazing and speaks to the people of Israel and answers the question, why is there so much incredible anti-Semitism? And by the way, anti-Semitism is on the rise today. In fact, it's equivalent to what it was in the 1930s prior to the Holocaust. But we're going to talk about that tonight. It's a fascinating study. I invite you to be back for that. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 says the following. The Lord's portion. Listen to this. The Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. He found Him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of a wilderness, He encircled Him. He cared for Him. He guarded Him as the pupil or literally apple of His eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, and he carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. He ate of the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock, and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, With the finest of wheat, and of the blood of grapes, you drink wine. But Jeshurun, another word for Israel, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. 
They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 19. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said to them, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. And listen to this, gang. God is the only one who has the right to spurn his people. God is the only one who has the right to be angry with, to judge, and to discipline his people Israel. The only one, not Moses. It was not Moses' right to step up and try to discipline as he did in those moments at Meribah. He violated his position. He overstepped his bounds. It wasn't his right. It is nobody's right to come against God's people, Israel. It's his job. It's his right. But read on. Skip down to verse 36. Tells us the Lord will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. Speaking to the false gods. In verse 39 he says, see now that I, I am he. There is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded It is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hands. Get down to verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance on his adversaries. And will atone for his land and his people. What about us? Because obviously the people of Israel struck the rock. Obviously they struck back against God. Obviously they spurned Him and landed themselves in the position that they are even in to this day. What about us? Can we do that? Can we contentiously strike the rock? Gang, when I lash out in anger towards God's people, I'm contending with God. When I usurp God's authority... I'm striving against Him. When I obscure God's character, again, I'm in contention. But when I strike God's people, that's when I strike the rock. Moses was striking twice here. Not just the rock, but the people. And he did not have the right to strike God's people. What do you mean? Jesus said in Matthew 25:40, Truly I say to you, To the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Strike not the rock. Jesus says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for each other. And the degree, gang, that we learn to love even the most unlovely among us. God's people. The degree that we learn to love God's people is the degree to which I love God. And I've heard it put this way, you really only love God as much as the person you love the least. That's a tough one. 
You only love God as much as the person you love the least. Now, you may look around in this fellowship, in this family, and you might say, oh, I love everybody here. I mean, there are a few people who annoy me, but I can, I can put that by me, and, and I can love them. But it's that guy at that other church, you know, down in Oak Harbor. I used to fellowship with that guy. I got no love for him. Let me tell you, if you have no love for him, you have no love for the Lord. The degree to which I love the least of these reveals how much I love Jesus. And that's what he's called us to. For when we strike out at each other, when we strike out at other people, specifically I'm talking about other Christians, gang, I'm talking about within the people of God. When we strike, we are striking the rock. And it's not our business, and it's not our place. God will strike when he needs to. God will discipline his way. But Paul put it this way. He said, Ephesians chapter 4, Do not grieve the Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Which means you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul tells you not to. It means that you can. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And you might say, speaking of forgiveness, I just wish that God had forgiven Moses so that he could have gone into the promised land. You Bible students know, he did. He did. Moses made it into the promised land. What? I thought he died on that mountain, buried by God outside the promised land. No. Matthew 17 tells the story of the transfiguration. Jesus is up on the mountain, and he is transfigured in glory, and standing there beside him is Elijah and Moses. God found a way to get him in. Let's pray. Lord, it truly is one thing. It's one thing to come to you and ask for forgiveness. It's one thing, Lord, to hand our lives over to you and and to submit and, and pray that you will be our Lord and Savior. It's one thing, Father, to go out into the waters and be baptized. It's one thing to begin this Christian life. It is yet another thing to walk it out day by day by day. And Father, you have created an environment that is both absolutely wonderful and absolutely difficult. It is wonderful, Father, as the Bible says, when we all dwell together in unity, when we love each other, when we care for each other, when the presence of the Spirit is just here like oil dripping down off Aaron's beard, the Bible says, that unity is fantastic and encouraging and it lifts us up and it builds us up. And oh, Father, we long for that and love it. But Father, when there's contention in the body, when there is strife among Christians, when someone that I know is a follower of yours hurts me or strikes me, or vice versa, Lord, that's when it's hard. And you have created this environment to develop our love for each other, not in an easy place, but in a place that's real, in a family. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for your vast wisdom. I thank you for calling out the church. I thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you, Lord, that we have opportunity on May 4th to come together with other churches in prayer and in unity and in love. And I pray for more of this. 
And I pray we would learn on a more intimate level, Father, not to strike each other. Even when we think someone in the body needs discipline, that, Lord, we would allow you to do that and we would love each other. Father, we need to learn to love you because it's for your sake that all these things happen. It's for your sake that we're here. And so, Father, we praise you. And we bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen.